Welcome uh, back to Oxford for those of you who live outside the Ring Road. Uh, I'm delighted to uh, be able to talk to you. My name is Timothy Endicott. I'm the Dean of the Faculty of Law. And the other members of your panel this afternoon are Sandra Fredman on my right and Murray Hunt on my left. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about us and, and what we're going to do in, in this session. Um, before, I, before I tell you about us, I want to really briefly tell you about someone who's not here. Um, someone whom perhaps some of you may have known and, and many of you will have heard of, um, Tom Bingham. Uh, Tom Bingham was the high steward of this university, the visitor of my college, um, Balliol, and he was the uh, senior judge in the highest court in this country. Uh, for much of the past decade, he retired two years ago, and uh, it's our great loss that he died an untimely death just a fortnight ago. Um, Tom was a teacher in, in Oxford. After his retirement, he came to Oxford as a visiting professor and gave, uh, some, gave classes for our undergraduates on human rights litigation. So, and he was teaching about the topic that we're here to talk about, all of us today, the future of human rights law. And uh, he, um, of course, had developed the English judge's approach to human rights law in his work as one of the senior judges in this country since the Human Rights Act was, uh, came into force uh, 10 years ago. Tom was a judge of um, immense reputation who led the other judges and when they were deciding the difficult cases that, that they needed to decide and, and deciding, of course, their own role in human rights adjudication, uh, they looked to him as a leader. And, and I mentioned this at the beginning just for, for two reasons. One is that when you hear about Tom Bingham um, as, as people in, from many walks of life from this country and others reflect on his importance in the days and months to come, uh, I hope you'll remember that he was a teacher uh, in this university, and, and I went to the first of his classes for the undergraduates, and right from the start, he would point out an undergraduate and say, you in the red jumper, how would you have decided the Cullen case? And uh, suddenly the student was confronted with a, a situation that I hope that you experienced as students in Oxford, um, the, the need to defend one's own point of view in front of someone <laughs> who uh, had some expertise in, in the subject. An extraordinary experience for our students um, and a wonderful thing for us in, in the university. And that's one, one thing I wanted to say about Tom. And the other is that, that is something about the future of human rights. In the future of human rights law in this country and abroad, uh, the lawyers and judges who need to develop the law and determine the ways in which the law can protect the dignity of human persons, the people who do that work will be doing it by learning from Tom Bingham. So uh, Tom Bingham is, is an important part of the future of human rights law. Now, let's get down to the brass tacks of the issues that we want to discuss with you today. Um, and, and I hope that what we say will, will be provocative at points, 
And if it is, then there, there will be time for you to tell us what you think and to ask us any questions. Um, we'll make sure that there's time for that. So, so let me encourage you from, from the start to hold on to things that occur to you that you'd like to ask us about while we're speaking, and, and there'll be opportunity for, the, for discussion of what we've said, but, but also for any other aspect of the, the topic that's in front of us at the end. But first, I, I'm going to say something, and so, so is Sandy and so is Murray. Uh, Sandra Fredman is Professor of Law in the Faculty of Law in the University of Oxford. Um, Murray Hunt is the legal advisor to the Parliamentary Joint Committee, that, that means the committee of both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, on human rights. And, and he's been in that role for some years and, and has been um, playing a, a, a focal role in the development of Parliament's approach to the problems of human rights in the future. Um, Murray and Sandy and I are all Oxford alumni, like you. Um, I'm Canadian, Murray's British, and Sandy is South African. And we all came here, like I'm sure many of you, um, because not, not only of the obscure mystique of, of Oxford, but because of the people who, who were here. And, um, and Sandy's been teaching human rights law in Oxford and has taken a lead the lead in, in teaching comparative human rights law and developing a new course for the BCL on so, social and economic rights and substantive equality. And uh, Murray has taught in, in Oxford uh, in tutorials, and we're hoping that we can get him teaching in the, uh, in the uh, undergraduate human rights law course in the future. I teach constitutional and administrative law. Uh, when I'm not doing the... Uh, uh, the things that you have to do as a, as a, as a dean, um, and I, I work on, in particular, on habeas corpus and, and the way in which judges control the executive. Uh, so each of us are going to talk for uh, a few minutes, uh, long enough to, I hope, to provoke you, but but short enough to keep some time for questions at the end. And I think we've agreed that I'm going to go first, and then Murray, and then and then you, Cindy. Um, I'm, I'm the only one with a PowerPoint, and don't worry because it's only one slide, which is on, on the screen uh, behind me. I, I made that slide. Those of you who are lawyers, I hope, I hope there are some here today who are lawyers. You can look up those cases that are cited, cases in the United States courts, in the English courts, and in the European Court of Human Rights, um, if you're interested. But, but I wanted everyone to see the a passage from the first article of the United States Constitution and, a pass, uh, and, and the first article of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, these documents well, were crafted in the 1780s in the case of the United States Constitution and in, in, the, uh, in 1950 in the case of the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, but they are an important background for our topic of the future of human rights. The, the topic I'm, I'm going to address is, is that question at the top of, of, of the screen. Does legal protection for human rights extend beyond our territory and beyond our citizens? And this uh, particular question is going to be a, an extraordinarily live, difficult, complex question in, in future disputes over hum, uh, legal protection of human rights. It's, it's a, f a fascinating set of problems, and, and I want to put some of them in front of you uh, in the short time that I have available. 
it might seem that because human rights are universal, they're rights of human persons, that legal protection for human rights should extend to every person uh, regardless of their nationality and regardless of whether they're in our territory or not. Um, or, on the other hand, it may seem that since the law is our law, the, the legal protection of human rights um, should extend to our territory and, and, uh, and protect our citizens from, from abuses. And the, the, the English courts and the American courts and the European Court of Human Rights have been struggling to find a middle way between those two ideas, both of which, in, in my view, would, would be mistakes. And, and, and the view to take instead is a very complex and difficult question. And I want to introduce it to you by telling you very briefly about litigation going on now in the American courts and now in the European Court of Human Rights over the war in Iraq and the war in Afghanistan. And when I mention that, you'll see why this is a problem about the future of human rights. Extraterritoriality is the, the jargon for it, is going to be a massively important question in the months and years to come, as courts in this country and other countries try to work out to what extent constitutional protections for human rights, or, or in, in our case in this country, the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, protect human rights of persons outside our, our territory. The, the important point I want to make, I think, and, and it may set the scene for some of what Sandy and Murray are going to say, is that this problem is one that judges need to solve, and in solving it, judges have been given a, a remarkable, dramatic uh, power uh, and responsibility for developing the very principles of the human rights regime. You might think that the principles of the human rights regime are for those people who drafted the United States Constitution to determine, or for the framers of the European Convention on Human Rights to determine. They're, they're matters that the, when the United States set up their constitution, the constitutional delegates responsible on behalf of the 13 states for coming up with a constitution, it was their job to decide what human rights protections there should be in the constitution. And in the European Convention, it was the task of the authorities of the, the states that signed up to that international treaty to decide on behalf of their countries. Um, and, and it was. And, and look at look at what they did. And this is why I've put on, on the screen um, the, a bit of the first article of the United States Constitution and a bit of the, of the European Convention on Human Rights. Can an al-Qaeda suspect detained by American forces in Afghanistan go to a United States federal court and ask for habeas corpus? Habeas corpus being the ancient English judicial process for asking a judge to decide whether a person is lawfully detained. Can an al-Qaeda suspect, who's not American, detained in Afghanistan, not in America, go to a US court and ask for habeas corpus? How does the United States Constitution answer that question? It does not. And here's, here's what the United States Constitution says about it. The writ of habeas corpus, the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus, shall not be suspended unless in rebellion or invasion. They sat down to determine how their constitution would protect human rights, and they did not say what habeas corpus is. They just said that it was not to be suspended. They did not answer this question. Um, can, 
Iraqi civilians who claim to have been abused, tortured, murdered, or families claim that they've been murdered by British soldiers in Iraq, can they complain to the European Court of Human Rights that their right to life or their right not to be subject to torture or inhuman or degrading treatment has been violated by the United Kingdom? It's a question for the framers of the European Convention on Human Rights to answer, for the, for the states that sign up to this international treaty to decide for themselves. And look at Article 1 of the European Convention. The framers did not answer this question. When the United Kingdom signed this treaty, agreeing to respect the rights that it enshrines and agreeing to accept the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights to decide when it's been violated, they did not answer this question. They said, The high contracting parties shall secure to everyone within their jurisdiction the rights and freedoms defined in Section 1 of this Convention. By the way, historians know that in the process of drafting the European Convention, they started out with a draft that said, shall secure to everyone resident within their territory. And in the discussions over writing this remarkable European instrument, uh, they were a bit concerned about that because it, perhaps the rights ought to be secured not only for residents but for others. And they replaced that wording with this. And, and so now if you, ask, if, if, you, if you ask a lawyer to say, what's the jurisdiction of the European Convention on Human Rights? The lawyer will turn to Article 1 and discover that the jurisdiction of the European Convention on Human Rights extends to the jurisdiction of the member state. Remarkable, remarkable um, delegation by the framers and, and by each of the member states that signed up to this. Uh, to, to whom? To whoever has to resolve a dispute over the effect of this uh, Convention on Human Rights. And that, of course, is, is the judges. The judges in this country today, now that the Human Rights Act has given certain forms of legal effect to the European Convention, but ultimately, the judges of the European Court of Human Rights, uh, to whom, as I, as I mentioned, the United Kingdom and the other 46 countries that have signed up to this convention agreed to, um, to commit decisions as to the effect of the convention. So uh, I, I don't have time to, walk, to take you through the, the litigation that's gone on over these cases. The Makale case is the al-Qaeda detainee in, in Afghanistan who has sought habeas corpus, and the federal court judge in the United States says, oh, yes, you can have habeas corpus because we, should, we judges need to decide whether somebody's being arbitrarily detained. That's what habeas corpus is, unless by doing so we would be damaging the ability of the United States forces to do their job in the war, and we, we wouldn't be, so we'll hear your habeas corpus petition. It goes to the federal court of appeal, and the Federal Court of Appeal judges say, no, no, wait, this is a war zone. And habeas corpus is not a technique for judges to run a war. And we would be interfering with the war effort if we listened to a complaint by an al-Qaeda suspect detained in Bagram Air Base that they're being unlawfully detained. And I have no doubt that that will go to the United States Supreme Court. The al Skeni case is on... Iraqi civilians in Iraq, and it went through all the English courts right to the House of Lords, and the English courts decided 
that if they are being held on a British base in Iraq, then they come within the jurisdiction of the of the United Kingdom for the European Convention. But if a British soldier allegedly tortures or kills them uh, in territory, in the streets of Basra, in territory not controlled by Britain, then they're not within the jurisdiction. Uh, this has created the most remarkable uh, split amongst judges in this country. And that, if for those of you who are lawyers, you just need to look at the remarkable Smith case decided earlier this year to find how the judges in, in the United Kingdom Supreme Court, which has replaced the House of Lords as the top court in the country, how those judges are, are divided over the effect of Article 1 of the European Convention. The Alskini case is going to the European Court of Human Rights. They've heard the case already, but they haven't yet given their decision. And I hope that when they do that, they will sort out the principles um, by which they as judges decide what the jurisdiction is of the European Convention on Human Rights. Now, perhaps in the discussion we'll have more time to talk about how they should decide this case. The point I wanted to put in front of you for present, and, and this may relate to what Sandy and Murray have to say, is that it is just remarkable what an open-ended authority we as a nation have given to judges to decide the extent of legal protection of human rights. It is remarkable what an open-ended authority the American framers and the delegates to their constitutional convention gave to judges in the United States to decide the extent of, of uh, human rights protection in the particular, uh, particular regime of habeas corpus. Now, doubtless, the framers of the United States Constitution weren't even thinking about foreign wars when they said habeas corpus shall not be suspended. I'm quite certain that the people who signed up to the uh, European Convention on Human Rights on behalf of the United Kingdom did not envisage disputes as to whether judges should decide when British soldiers in overseas wars are abusing human rights but they created instruments that authorized and in fact required judges to decide what the effect of, of the convention is in the case of, of Britain, what the effect of the constitution is in the United States. It's a difficult responsibility for judges to face up to. It will become more creative and more dramatic as uh, the political and military role of this country and others across this remarkable continent develop in the future. And here's the last, uh, a last question I want to, want to leave you with. Was it a crazy thing for the United Kingdom to sign up to the European Convention? Because remember, if you agree with what I've said, it's a convention that gives to judges the power to decide what the convention is in some remarkably important aspects. Not altogether. They can't decide whether or not there's a right to life. That, that, that says that in the convention. <clears throat> but on some remarkably fundamental issues as to the effect of the convention, it gives the power to decide what the protection for human rights shall be to judges. And what judges, 47 judges from 47 countries in this remarkable international court. The Americans would never have signed up to such, such a thing. Why would a country 
give to the judge, judges drawn from 47 countries the power to decide the fundamental principles of human rights protection in this country. Um, you might say that's an extraordinary and damaging thing for a country to give away to other countries. Uh, but, but wait a minute. Uh, here's, here's a potential rationale. Um, and I think the rationale that was in the minds of delegates from the representatives of this country in the 1950s. It might be worth doing that remarkable thing, giving this fundamental, uh, you might say, constitution-building role to judges drawn from, from across the country. If it's a way of contributing to a project across this remarkable continent, across very diverse countries, uh, a project of finding a coordinated way together uh, to protect certain fundamental rights. So it, it, I think uh, Brits in the future should realize that they are part of a very remarkable project which gives a remarkable fundamental authority to judges to decide how we as a country here and how people across this continent are going to respect human dignity in the future. Thanks. Thank you very much, um, Timothy. Um, <clears throat> I want to really take up where Timothy's left off because Timothy really has identified a legitimacy problem and question, throwing it out to you all. Why would a democracy sign up to an international human rights treaty which appears to hand over so much to unaccountable judicial decision-makers who sit in a remote supranational court where the UK has one of 47 judges. And for me, this poses what I think is probably the greatest challenge to human rights and the human rights movement and advocates of human rights protection um, for the next few years, this democratic legitimacy problem. And I think this, my starting point every day in the job that I do is that there is a serious democratic legitimacy problem that bedevils human rights, the very vocabulary, the language, the discourse, the practices, the institutions of human rights. And it's one that we have to take very seriously. Every democracy throughout the world professes its commitment to human rights. But in all of those democracies, the institutions that are relied upon to give effect to those human rights are, in the main, legal institutions, courts, <clears throat> legal processes, judges, essentially unaccountable decision-makers, undemocratic decision-makers, you could say. And that makes it very easy for sceptics about human rights, of whom there are many, on all sides, across the political spectrum, left, right, in the middle, to level the charge that human rights is inherently and profoundly <clears throat> anti-democratic. And it's a charge that we've seen feature quite large in our own political debates in this country in the last general election, just as a reminder of how live these, de these debates can be. Um, let's not forget that the recent general election in this country uh, was fought by the party which gained the largest representation in the House of Commons, the Conservative Party, um, on a manifesto which pledged to repeal um, the Human Rights Act, which is the main legal instrument for giving effect to the European Convention uh, on Human Rights. 
in this country. <clears throat> and in its place to initiate a debate about whether there ought to be some substitute, but very explicitly to repeal uh, the Human Rights Act. So we have to take very seriously the arguments of the sceptics on <coughs> democratic grounds. <clears throat> and the response to those sceptics in the last decade or two um, has been an interesting one. And I'd, I'd like to just outline briefly what it is to explain to you where the Joint Committee on Human Rights fits into that response and then to just raise a few question marks about the dangers um, of the response. The response, by and large, has been to try and develop um, what are in the literature called legislative models of human rights protection. To try to create institutional forms and structures in which elected politicians, parliamentarians, the government, which is usually made up of primarily elected decision makers, are forced to engage with human rights and force themselves to actually take human rights claims seriously as human rights claims. And we've seen a burgeoning literature across the world, and in particular in Commonwealth jurisdictions and common law jurisdictions, which have argued that we need to be innovative and imaginative in developing institutions to make sure that politicians can somehow debate human rights as part of political discourse. Now, the institution that I work for could be seen as part of that response to the critique of human rights as being inherently anti-democratic. The Joint Committee on Human Rights, as Timothy said, um, it's probably a, a little-known body. I don't expect any person in the, in the room to necessarily have heard of it. it. It's simply a parliamentary committee, and it's made up of six Commons members and six House of Lords members. And its job is essentially to report to Parliament, as a committee of parliamentarians, in relation to human rights matters in the UK. And there's an interesting extraterritorial question to the extent of its remit, which Timothy's uh, talk raises, which you may have time to come back to later. <clears throat> but that is um, essentially what the task of the Joint Committee on Human Rights is. And what that committee has sought to do since it came into existence in the year 2000 is to find different ways of enhancing Parliament's um, in engagement with human rights. The principal means by which it sought to do that is by scrutinising bills which the government brings before Parliament to assess their compatibility with the UK's human rights obligations. And that has occupied a very great deal of that committee's um, time and energy in the ten years of its existence. So any bill, any government bill, will be scrutinised and my job as legal advisor is to advise the committee of the legal questions which arise for its compatibility with human rights. And that may be both whether it contains provisions or measures which interfere with human rights, or it may be whether it fails to take steps which the bill provides an opportunity for the government to implement positive <coughs> obligations on the state, to actually fulfil some of the obligations which human rights treaties impose um, on the United Kingdom. So scrutinising legislation is, one can see, an alternative or another way of giving effect to human rights obligations 
which is different from what courts do when they're considering claims by individuals that their rights have been violated by a particular law. And if it works well, it should preempt a lot of claims by individuals. It's a prophylactic way of protecting human rights by trying to embed into the policy-making process at as early a stage as possible human rights considerations, getting government decision-makers and policy-makers used to the idea of the UK's human rights obligations, trying to get them to internalise those obligations um, and to think in those human rights terms as they're drafting the laws, and then to provoke debate in Parliament about how good a job the executive has done in doing that, in measuring its laws and policies against human rights obligations, and then forcing parliamentarians to educate themselves about those human rights standards to measure the laws against them. So scrutinising bills for compatibility is one of the things the Joint Committee on Human Rights has done a great deal of. Uh, It also engages in other forms of scrutinising the government's record. It examines the human rights, national human rights institutions which have been set up in the UK, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, the Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission, the Commissioners for Children and so on, the institutional machinery um, which is so crucial to giving effect, giving practical effect to human rights obligations is something which, again, the Joint Committee on Human Rights tries to make parliamentarians engage with. A lot of this otherwise bypasses Parliament. The UK's range of international human rights obligations under a whole series of different treaties is monitored by a number of international bodies. Again, until relatively recently, debate about the extent to which the UK was satisfying those international treaties and satisfying the compliance reports of those international bodies bypassed Parliament. And the Joint Committee on Human Rights has tried to, um, has by scrutinising the government's record against those treaties and reporting to Parliament and trying to provoke debates in Parliament, has tried to force parliamentarians uh, to engage with what those human rights treaties actually require. So it's sought to find a whole series of different ways to engage politicians, parliamentarians, and government decision makers and civil servants um, in human rights discussion and debate. So that's broadly been the response to the the legitimacy concern. But there's a danger in the legislative model, and we see it in quite a lot of the academic literature. And the danger is that the the legislative model of human rights protection is seen as an alternative to the judicial model of human rights protection. And indeed, many of the advocates in the literature of a legislative model of human rights protection regard parliaments and legislatures and accountable decision-makers as the only legitimate decision-makers in relation to human rights, and they see this as an alternative to courts. And my own view, and it'll be very interesting to hear um, your views in our discussion, is that it's essential that we regard judicial and legislative models of human rights protection as being essentially complementary. We need both. In a democracy, one needs the courts to fulfil the role that they fulfil in those countries where they have entrenched bills of rights, but we also need the democratic institutions themselves to take those human rights obligations seriously and work out what they mean in practical terms uh, in relation to policies. That gives rise to a whole set of very interesting and difficult decisions, or or questions, I should say, um, about how those two forms of human rights review relate to each other. For example, when Parliament has scrutinised a bill and had a very thorough debate about the human rights implications of, let's take a controversial um, measure 
um, in the counter-terrorism field. Um, the 42 days proposal, for example. If Parliament has had a very well-informed debate about the human rights compatibility of that provision, and had it been enacted into law, it wasn't enacted into law, but had it been, what then should the court subsequently do when, it has to con- when they have to consider the compatibility of that law under the Human Rights Act? What relevance to their determinations and their considerations and deliberations should those parliamentary considerations have for the judges? Clearly they shouldn't just defer and say it's not for us because Parliament's considered it. But that raises some quite interesting and difficult questions about what weight do they ascribe to those considerations? Should they look at them at all? Are they irrelevant? Is it just a question of law for the judges? A lot of very interesting um, questions um, arise. But that essentially is the, the big challenge, in my view, for human rights in this country. How we can enhance the legitimacy Um, of human rights discourse by finding new ways and imaginative ways of involving parliamentarians and elected decision makers in discussions about human rights and how we can work out uh, what that means for the way courts make decisions about human rights. And I'll just give you one example of the sorts of questions which uh, arise. At the moment, um, the government has is conducting a fundamental review of counter-terrorism and security powers. It was announced shortly after the election. Now, since 9-11, there have been a number of statutes brought before Parliament by the government uh, which have sought to address the the threat from terrorism, um, but which have had very serious human rights implications. And they've been scrutinised extensively in Parliament, including by the Joint Committee on Human Rights, Uh, and a number of reports have been uh, published being very critical of various aspects of those laws. Many of the laws have been passed, often without those concerns being taken into account. The courts have then considered the compatibility of those laws and in some some cases um, have declared them incompatible. In other cases have used their extensive powers under the Human Rights Act to read them in a way which makes them compatible. And then those laws end up being considered again by Parliament. And at the moment, and in the context of the current counter-terrorism review, we're going to have a very interesting time in Parliament where parliamentarians are going to have to grapple with the implications of quite a significant body of case law from our own courts and from the Strasbourg Court since 9-11 in the context of new proposals being brought forward by the executive. And so it's crucial that that we approach this argument about legislative models and judicial models and their respective virtues in the realistic appreciation that courts have a role to play, parliamentarians have a role to play. And when parliamentarians are engaging with the human rights implications of measures such as those in the the counter-terrorism area, it is crucial that they take into account, consider, conscientiously engage with, with the benefit of proper legal advice, the court decisions which are directly relevant to to those laws. Uh, So that's really essentially my uh, my central message. The essential complementarity of judicial um, and legislative models of human rights scrutiny and compatibility review uh, is absolutely um, essential if we're really to grapple with the legitimacy problem for the future of human rights, which is only um, going to increase, uh, and as Timothy's paper um, 
clearly indicates there are many, many flashpoints um, for this legitimacy debate to uh, erupt. Thank you. Uh, Speaking of flashpoints, Sandy? I might stand up, is that all right? Since I'm the the last in an after-lunch session, which is uh, often the sleepy session, I thought maybe I'd stand up. Uh, Hopefully um, everyone can hear me. And also I'm going to talk about uh, a recent and what I regard as a very controversial case, which some of you might be acquainted with, which is uh, in the area of equality law, that aspect of human rights law, and this is the case known as the JFS case or the Jewish Free, the Jewish free School case. Um, now, um, this case is about a state school which is designated as a Jewish faith school. And faith schools are given a particular exemption from religious discrimination law, allowing them to discriminate on grounds of religion. However, the Jewish Free School, JFS, was found by the Supreme Court to have discriminated on grounds of race when its selection criteria um, admitted only Jewish children. So the Jewish selection criteria for admitting Jewish children were held to breach the race discrimination laws um, and therefore unlawful. So how, how does this come about? Um, somewhat extraordinary result... Um, Well, many of you might know that under Jewish religious law to be Jewish, uh, either your mother needs to be Jewish or either you or your mother should have been converted to Judaism. And the majority of the Supreme Court said that this rule was based on your descent and any rule based on descent was a rule based on ethnic or racial grounds And therefore, um, it was not within the religious exemption, but was racially discriminatory. Um, Lord Brown, in his dissent, said, um, the root of the question is simply this. Can a Jewish faith school ever give preference to those who are members of the Jewish religion under Jewish law? In his view, and he was the dissent, I would answer yes, it can, to the hold to the contrary would be to stigmatize Judaism as a directly racially discriminating religion, I would respectfully disagree with this conclusion. Indeed, I would greatly regret it. However, the majority came to the opposite conclusion, and the result was that um, the Jewish Free School has had to change its selection criteria to, uh, and what it has put in its place are that you have to show that you actually were practicing in the Jewish faith, went to synagogue twice a month on a Saturday and high holy days. Now, um, personally, I'm Jewish and I've been Jewish for many... Well, my family's been Jewish for generations, but my children would not be counted as Jewish for those criteria. Um, And again, as Lord Brown put it, This is to impose a profoundly Christian view of what amounts to um, who is Christian, which is a practice-based view, whereas in Judaism it's always been either based on conversion or based on your mother being Jewish. Um, So I thought I might say a little bit about, a bit more about how this 
result comes about. Um, first of all, of course, we need to know a bit more about the facts of the case. And when we look at it, we find that this is a dispute um, within Judaism, very fierce dispute between two parts of Judaism, that is the Orthodox and the non-Orthodox, in this case, Mazorti. And in fact, the case was about a boy who was not permitted to become a pupil at the school um, because he was Mazorti Jewish, he was Jewish, his mother was Jewish, but she was Jewish because she'd been converted by the Mazorti uh, part of Judaism, which isn't recognized by the Orthodox part. And the school selection criteria looked at more closely said that you had to be born to a mother who was Jewish or had converted by Orthodox Judaism. Or, of course, you had to have converted by Orthodox Judaism. Um, so, again, I think that the school was very wrong to have rejected this boy. And I would, a, whole, a lot of people would hotly agree with me and a lot of people would hotly disagree with me. But probably the thing we could agree on is that ours is a religious dispute uh, and not a racial one. Um, in other words, one could say that really this, the, the debate, the issue in this case, was a deeply religious one. Um, the court, however, the majority of the court, however, said that as long as there was um, a dissent-based criterion, it didn't matter that the motive was religious. The reality was it was based on dissent, and therefore... Um, it was a race-based decision. Um, so one of the problems that we can see is that um, under the race discrimination laws, which have now been harmonized into one single equality act, um, there is a bright line distinction drawn between religion and ethnicity. So there's an exception for religion, but not for ethnicity, and again, this is a very Christocentric view. I'm told Anglican, Church of England-centric view, um, because it, think, it assumes you can distinguish between religion and ethnicity, whereas in other religions, Judaism being one, ethnicity and religion are very closely bound up. So you can be a secular Jew. Secular Jew makes sense in Judaism, which I would count myself as, but it may not make sense in the Church of England to be a, a secular Christian. Um, so that's a problem with the structure of the legislation. Um, there's a second and even perhaps deeper problem with the structure of discrimination law, and I'll say a bit more about that. Um, for those of you who are uh, those of you who are acquainted with discrimination law in Britain, I hope you don't mind if I just set the scene briefly. Um, there's a distinction in the law between what's called direct discrimination and what's called indirect discrimination. Now, direct discrimination is simply treating somebody less favorably on the grounds of her race or her sex than you would treat others. So if the reason that I treat you less favorably than someone else is your race or your sex, I'm discriminating against you. On the other hand, it's been recognized that I might treat everybody equally, but actually the result might be different for some groups because they have previously suffered disadvantage or have been discriminated against. And this comes from a very well-known case in the U.S. called Griggs and Duke Power, where an employer 
imposed a high school qualification requirement on job applicants for quite menial manual jobs which didn't really need a high school requirement. And because um, black people in the U.S. had been discriminated against in the education system, almost none of them, in fact, none of them met this requirement and the workforce remained wholly white. And the court, the U.S. Supreme Court, said that this was also a species of discrimination which has been called adverse impact discrimination or indirect discrimination, which is need not have any intention to discriminate. You could treat everyone equally, but the result of your actions is to disadvantage one group. Now, in the um, British legislation, there's a very strict distinction between these two types of discrimination, and that's because... One, of direct discrimination, has no defense. It cannot be justified. Whereas indirect discrimination, you could say, well, even though I imposed this requirement, it was really necessary for the job. So you might say very few women become airline pilots because few women train as airline pilots, but we can't get rid of the requirement of training as an airline pilot because we wouldn't want to be... um, dropped out of the sky. So it's justifiable to have that criterion. Um, Now, there's a sense in which we shouldn't be able to justify direct discrimination because we feel morally it's wrong to treat somebody less favorably on grounds of their race. So we shouldn't be able to say, for example, my customers don't like to be served by black people. I didn't want to treat you because of your race, but I wanted to please my customers. So we want to avoid that kind of excuse. Um, The difficulty is that if you say we don't want to allow excuses, you've nevertheless got to show that the reason for your um, less favorable, the reason for the less favorable outcome was the race or sex of the person. And so how do we distinguish between the reason that I give for my action and an excuse, which is irrelevant? The reason is relevant and the excuse is irrelevant for direct discrimination. Now, the way in which the Supreme Court in the JFS case drew this distinction, which actually draws on other jurisprudence which went before, is to distinguish between your motive and the ground for your decision. So they said many times in the case, um, the motive of the school and the chief rabbi, who was also joined in the case, was exemplary. It was religious, and they had no problem with the motive. The motive was a religious motive. The school and the chief rabbi believed that they were following the religious law in deciding who was Jewish, but that didn't prevent them from having discriminated because the ground of the discrimination, of the less favourable treatment, was um, dissent, which is an ethnic ground. Um, Now, in order to see the difficulty with this way of thinking about it, it's worth taking a step back and looking at previous cases, um, particularly cases which have begun to say that even that if you impose a criterion, it can be intrinsically Um, discriminatory, even if you didn't mean it to be, and that was the case in this case. So we can take previous case, which was 
called James and Eastleigh Borough Council, which some of you might know about, about the swimming pool. It was really about um, concessions for pensioners. Um, and in this, as you know, in this country, um, women are pensionable at 60 and men at 65. Um, and the Eastleigh Borough Council gave concessions <coughs> to people over pensionable age because they wanted to uh, compensate for the decline in income that you might have after pension age. Um, the result was, though, that when Mrs. James and Mr. James went to the swimming pool, she got in free. They were both 61 years old, and Mrs. James got in free, but her husband, who was also 61, had to pay. So backed by the Equal Opportunities Commission, he brought a case claiming that this was sex discrimination. Now, the, the Borough Council said our reason for this differentiation was to compensate for declining income over pensionable age. We agree, they said, it's pretty rough and ready criterion. Some people might not have a drop in income at 61, and some might, but as with most welfare, we have to have a reasonably rough and ready um, principle because you can't ask everyone at the swimming pool gate to show you their bank statements and so on. Um, so that was our reason. The court said, well, that may have been your motive, but it wasn't the ground for your decision. The ground was that he was a man, and they used a test, but for the fact that he was a man, he would have been permitted to um, come into the school. And, I mean, the swimming pool. And, um, sorry. <laughs> and um, they coined this notion of an intrinsically... Um, sex discriminatory provision in which they said the criterion itself treats women more favorably than men on the ground of their sex um, and therefore was inherently discriminatory. And Lord Griffiths, in his dissenting opinion, pointed out how paradoxical this result was. Um, the result of your Lordship's decision will be that either free facilities must be withdrawn from those who can ill afford to pay for them or alternatively given free to those who can well afford to pay for them. I consider both alternatives regrettable and I cannot believe Parliament intended such a result. So the reason this, um, prob this concept of an intrinsically discriminatory criterion was then reinforced in the JFS case, where both Lords Mance and Lords Clark expressly held that direct discrimination can now arise in one of two ways. One is you subject uh, your motor, your action was taken for a reason which is subjectively racial, but also, secondly, because a decision or action was taken on a ground which was, however worthy or benign the motive, inherently racial. And in this case, um, the criterion was inherently racial, although for a benign motive. Um, and so, although the chief rabbi and the governors of the school were entirely free from moral blame and must have acted on what seemed to them to be a, an entirely legitimate objective, um, this was all irrelevant. What was relevant was that it was um, a racially dis 
but for the fact that his mother was not Jewish by orthodox standards, this boy would have been admitted to the school. Now, it seems to me that this um, gives... Well, we might ask what, what is wrong, what has gone wrong. Um, Lord Roger, also in his dissent, said that the majority's decision leads to such extraordinary results and produces such manifest discrimination against Jewish schools in comparison with other faith schools that one can't help feeling that something's gone wrong. So what kind of things might have gone wrong? And this is my view on the case, so please read the case and make up your own minds, but I'm putting it um, in, obviously, from a particular perspective. Um, Well, first of all, The notion that a criterion is inherently discriminatory is really about the impact of the decision and not about the person's reason for the decision. And so it should be part of the second notion, which is indirectly discriminatory, because it's about the effect. The effect of the decision was to exclude the boy because his mother was converted by Mazzotti Judaism and not by Orthodox, but... um, the reason for the decision was the religious one that this was the orthodox Jewish rule. And if we realise that, then we can permit a justification defence and the court could at least think through the real issues of the case, which were, should the, court, the school be allowed to exclude Mazorti Jews and admit orthodox Jews? Now, if you take that view, we might say that's for the religion to sort out and not the court, we might say it's for the court to sort out, but at least we would be talking about what was really at issue in the case. Um, Secondly, this but-for test, which looks like it's a very nice scientific neutral test, is actually, when you look at it harder, could give you a whole range of results depending on how you formulate the question. For example, we could say, but for the fact that he was a Mazorti Jew and not an Orthodox Jew he would have been admitted, so the reason is religious. Or we could say, but for the fact that his mother was Mazorti rather than Orthodox, uh, he would have been admitted, and that's a religious and an ethnic one. Or, but for the fact that Judaism only recognises the matrilineal line and not the patrilineal line, he would have been admitted, because actually his father was Jewish, um, and this is a gender-based and ethnic and religious rule. Now, I personally would have said that the last one was the real problem, that it's a gender-based rule, but I'm not sure I would have invited the courts in, certainly not the British courts, to sort that one out um, in terms of um, my religion. Um, thirdly, we might say that the relegation of the real reason to a mere motive really cuts, undercuts the moral rationale of race discrimination law. Um, you, it, it does seem really strange to say, we are finding that you're guilty of race discrimination, but we don't cast any moral aspersion on you. We're not saying, and the, court, the, the majority in the Supreme Court said this many times, we are not saying that you're racist and we're not saying there's anything morally wrong with what you're doing, we're just saying you're discriminating on grounds of race. Now it seems to me that why have a race discrimination law if you don't have a a moral um, moral blame to it? 
Um, and so, last 10-second point is what might we do about this? Well, we could change the structure of discrimination law. Um, for example, we could have a justification defense for direct discrimination. We could call this indirect discrimination. We could abolish faith schools, which might be a be- a, the best way forward and not allow anyone to discriminate on grounds of religion. Um, or whatever. So perhaps we have some more ideas from others about the way forward. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy.